today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, you might remember last week we were uh, talking with Paul Delaney, space exploration expert, professor of astronomy and physics at York University, uh, about uh, Perseverance, a uh, another rover landing on Mars, uh, an incredible an incredible feat of science to see how this all happens. But now we are seeing incredible pictures uh, that are coming back of this uh, whole descend and landing and such. Uh, let's bring in Paul Delaney now from York University. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am indeed, Scott. Thanks for the call. So I, I watched uh, you know a piece of this video today, and I think the first thing, and you probably know what I'm going to say, I think the first thing that stands out from for me is I remember being a little kid, and the neighbors calling us in to watch uh, the the moon landing and to actually see the astronauts in the capsule and all that other stuff and that greeny kind of video that we saw, and man, looking at these shots of perseverance, it's like you can read the serial numbers off the side <laughs> of the thing. Uh, the quality of the the images are is just spectacular. As different as cheese and chalk, a- absolutely. I, I, too, remember you know the Apollo 11 and squinting at the screen, and, and that's the best expression I can use, squinting at the screen to see the details. Yet the imagery that NASA released yesterday of the descent process for Perseverance, you know, talk about high definition. You're right there. I could feel myself swaying on the harness, and you know, it, it was just beautiful. N- nothing, nothing compared to it. Uh, in recent years, the imagery that they were able to capture during the descent this time around, second to none, and it really gave you the impression that you were right there with the rover. I, I thought it was fascinating when it, it started to approach the actual surface of Mars once you started to see the dust kick up. That's right, exactly. The eight engines that were uh, holding the sky crane in place, the descent section, really did kick up quite a bit of dust. And you could literally see you know, Perseverance lowered into a dust storm. I mean, it, it was, there was great poetry associated with the whole affair, no question. We've seen you know, some imagery before, stills here and there, some from orbit. I like the parachute canopy you know, being yeah. from orbit and so on. But the imagery they picked up this time, they went to special lengths to ensure that they could see the parachute deploy, the perspective of the ground from the lander, and then, you know, as the sky crane was engaging, the down and up looking perspective. As I said, they they, they spent they, they spared no effort this time round to ensure we all had a ringside seat. And we got it back literally, you know, within three days. I mean, there's a lot of bandwidth there coming from Mars and the imagery was was well worth the wait. Talk about that, because even the science, we, we know how far away this planet is. And, and again, it takes minutes for a signal to go from point A to point B. But as you said, the bandwidth, we all know what it's like working, you know, at home and having issues with computers and such and, and, and taxing the system. The fact that they can transport those images that, uh, that, uh, from, from one point to another, uh, in that clarity is just unbelievable. They've, they've put into orbit around Mars relay mechanisms that, you know, even Elon Musk could probably be drooling with. Uh, you know, we, we've got satellites in orbit around Mars. They've been there, you know, some of them for as long as sort of 17, 18 years, some much more recent. But all of them have had this redundant capability to support land operations. And it was really utilized very well. With some. I think NASA had its own, three of its own satellites 
picking up transmissions uh, in the event, of course, that something happened. You know, you wanted this level of redundancy, but you know, picking up all of the transmissions. The uh, Perseverance itself had a dedicated system independent of you know monitoring its own health, but you know just worrying about the photography of it. Uh, then, of course, you know we've, we've got the sound as well now. I mean, there was just a lot of attention to detail utilizing all of the assets that were in orbit around Mars. So it, it, it's been a, a very comprehensive use of those assets that NASA has been able to employ, and, and you and I are the, the beneficiaries of it. it. It really is superb. That's exactly what I was about to say here, Paul, is that, you know, we often talk about uh, the costs associated with doing this and lots of people are saying, why are we wasting our money doing that when we have issues here on Earth? But the technology involved in just, for example, these images, you're going to see that sooner or later in in your own, uh, whether it's device or what have you in, in a few years. It's amazing how that comes back to serve us. That's exactly right. In fact, that's why various nations are putting time, effort and energy into space-based applications, because it employs people that stay in the country. The technology that they develop ends up in yours and I's pockets with with cell phones and iPads and so on and so forth. It's not a closed environment. We're not just going to Mars for the sake of, you know, a a, a few science and engineering nerds. I mean, this is really uh, something that benefits us all in one way or another. Uh, and to me, that's, that's the unsung story of what NASA did last week. You know, they're, they're, they're making it a point of showing us this detail to make us excited to, to, to really engage in the exploration process, but it's also a polite little uh, nod to saying, you know, these are the people we're training, and you know what, they're going to be working for, you know, pick your organization in the coming months and years, and you, as the public, will be the beneficiary of it. Yeah, and, and again, as we mentioned, those pictures from Apollo compared to what we're seeing now, I mean, the Apollo almost looked like ultrasound. Uh, they almost look like ultrasound pictures. Uh, it's amazing just to see we've how that's... We've a long way in 50 years. I mean, yeah, boy, I have we. Yeah, no, no offense to the Apollo era, but yeah, it, it really was another lifetime ago. So we hear often of that seven minutes of terror. Explain to people what that is. So as the spacecraft is approaching Mars, it's on literally a ballistic trajectory. It doesn't stop and go into orbit. It is traveling in its cruise phase at about 20,000 kilometers an hour. It's it's sort of, you know, know, booting along there, uh, and it hits the top of the atmosphere, traveling uh, with all of this energy, with all of this speed. It's got to wash that energy away and get to the ground at a nice leisurely zero kilometers an hour. And it's got to do that in seven minutes. That's how long it takes because of the speed it's traveling at. And so it hits the atmosphere, the probe hits the atmosphere, washes a lot of that speed and energy off in terms of friction. So that's the heat of reentry. The heat shield takes most of that. The vehicle is banking through the atmosphere, sort of trying to bleed off as much energy, contacting as much air as it can. And then it deploys the parachute once it gets to around a thousand kilometers an hour. It's, it's still traveling, you know, very, very fast. But a thousand kilometers an hour, the parachute deploys, and you can see the parachute deploy in the imagery. It takes less than a second to go uh, and deploy itself. I mean, it, 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 it's a piece of engineering technology just there, which is quite amazing. Well, yeah, then, right. Like, stop right there, Paul. Right. You think about that, how fast this thing yeah. is going, and then it, it drags out a parachute. Like, how does it just not end up like a torn sheet in the air? 
for the first several years of development of these parachutes, that's exactly what happened. I mean, this, this was a long process. Uh, and I, I remember following along while NASA was you know, developing this process. They were doing it first in wind tunnels because, of course, you can't generate that necessary speed in regular uh, air uh, deploy. So they're doing it in wind tunnel tests. And the vast majority of the parachutes just shredded mercilessly at those yeah. uh, speeds. But they eventually figured it out. And now they, they do it routinely. Uh, so, you know, the parachutes out, the, the spacecraft is now and gently uh, wafting towards the ground. They get rid of what they call the back shell. And now Perseverance begins to look at the ground. And it, it's got like about two minutes to figure out exactly where it is based upon the land markings, decide whether or not it's on course, whether or not it needs to make any uh, corrections, and then identify a safe landing spot. You, you can't put this on a boulder or a rock or you know an outcropping that's going to puncture. You know, Remember, ingenuity is on the base of this rover. So you can't put it down mm-hmm. on top of a rock outcropping. And so it's got two minutes to do that. It finally concludes, yep, I know where I'm going. We, we're on track. It then gets rid of the parachute, and now the eight thrusters fire up and bring it to a hovering position above the ground. And as you said, you could see the dust being kicked up uh, by, those, uh, uh, by those thrusters. And then you know, 20-meter winch for the spacecraft down to the ground. I mean, that's the seven minutes of terror. And it's all done on autopilot. You know, we are so far from Earth. You mentioned this. You know, light travel time is just too long. The spacecraft has got to do all of its own thinking, the programming, the contingencies. Imagine if your blue screen of death crops up, right? You've got to reboot your system in the middle of seven <laughs> really? minutes of terror. <laughs> I mean, there is no fingernails left at mission control during this sequence. And you saw the release of that pent-up uh, tension when the call came out, Tango Bravo, that you know it's touched down on the surface of Mars. It was it was great. <laughs> and there, the celebration you see afterwards, you can imagine. Uh, Paul Delaney, space exploration expert, professor of astronomy and physics, York University. Uh, great pictures coming back from Perseverance that is uh, up there roaming around on Mars. Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we were talking uh, just the other day about uh, the investigation into the engine failure of a Boeing 777. Uh, and uh, obviously the engine uh, coming apart uh, in air. Uh, I believe Denver uh, to Hawaii was the uh, was the flight of the United Airlines. And uh, obviously the uh, the uh, engine had a catastrophic failure. We're now already uh, finding preliminary uh, uh, the investigators rather have released a preliminary preliminary finding uh, on the engine failure. And to talk more about that, let's bring in Keith Mackey, aviation expert and owner operator and owner operator of Mackie International did we just lose Keith oh all right go ahead so you might remember what happened we're just trying to get uh, Keith back on the line so you might remember this was a airline that was flying over uh, out of Denver on its way to Hawaii uh, a couple of minutes into the flight um, all of a sudden a massive uh, engine failure the engine uh, blows apart uh, flames out uh, pieces of the engine uh, fly off the cowling in the areas that uh, cover the engine uh, leaving the plane and actually landing uh, in people's yards and such uh, below uh, luckily nobody was hurt on the plane or 
uh, on the ground as a result of the flying parts. But uh, from what they have uh, discovered already, uh, it looks like they do have some indication as to what's uh, happened. Let's bring in Keith Mackey, avi- uh, aviation expert, owner and operator of Mackey International, and is with us now. Keith, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott, and yourself. Good. Thanks for taking the time for a quick update here, Keith. I was surprised that, or were you surprised, uh, that how quickly they've, uh, again, these are preliminary findings, but they seem to know what happened here. It doesn't take very long to figure out that one of the uh, fan blades had departed. Quick look at the engine would have told. In fact, we really suspected that yesterday because as we looked at the video, we could see the, uh, the fan section vibrating quite a bit and we could notice that there was one area where there appeared to be a missing blade they say metal fatigue the reason here uh how do you monitor that how do you make sure this doesn't happen well let's go through how these jet engines are developed and put in the service when a new engine's developed they put time limits on everything you can fly so many hours and then you have to take it apart and overhaul it and inspect everything And as the engines acquire more uh, service experience in the fleet, that time is raised and raised and raised. And eventually, let's just say an airline has 50 uh, of an engine type, and they've run them all a million hours and never had any trouble at all. The FAA will make the part on condition. In other words, as long as the engine is developing the proper power, you don't have to take it apart and inspect every little piece. And... This engine, a couple of years ago, had done already 150 million engine hours. So it's an engine that's been around for a long time. There's a lot of experience with it. And uh, this situation is not exactly unique. seems that back in 2018, another United 777 going into Honolulu, of all places, the same as this one, this time out of San Francisco, on descent, about 45 minutes out, had exactly the same thing happen. Uh, the NTSB final report noted that the primary cause was lapses and failures in Pratt & Whitney's fan blade inspections, resulting in a cracked blade erroneously being returned to service. An inspector had seen a possible sign of a crack in the blade. He thought it was just paint. He put it back on the uh, engine. And apparently it ran several years before it actually failed. So uh, this is not unique. Uh, the reason it's getting so much attention is because it came apart over a residential neighborhood. We really haven't heard about the other one because it apparently came apart over the ocean and didn't put anybody in any danger. So at any rate, what they'll do is they'll uh, look at these blades that failed. And I think one failed and possibly took out another one. And they'll look at the metal uh, microscopically, see what caused the failure, if it had been pre-existing, if it had been something that damaged that blade in particular, and uh, they'll get it resolved quite quickly, I think. These fan uh, blades can be changed rather easily. Remember, this is the front part of the engine, the part that rotates right in the very front. So it gets Mm -hmm. all the erosion from sand and anything that goes through the engine wears out those fan blades. So they're inspected uh, rather frequently, and if one has uh, uh, gotten some damage, it's, it's relatively easy to change the blades individually. 
So I'm sure that the uh, the failure will go along those lines. Hopefully it's just isolated to one blade. Hopefully there was something unique about that blade that caused the failure that won't affect a number of them. But time will tell. I don't think it'll take a great deal of time. You said that these engines, uh, some are aging or certainly have a, a lot of hours on them. Will this result in a change in inspection protocol? What do you think is going to come out of this incident? Well, I think it will. I think uh, that we'll likely find that perhaps this thing could have been spotted if it had been inspected properly. Perhaps we'll find that uh, someone failed to do their job when they did inspect it. Perhaps we'll find that there's uh, some sort of a defect, but I think that's kind of remote as far as a design defect, because these things have so many, many, many millions of hours on them. They, they run on, the, heck, the 747 uses the same engine, the uh, A300, the uh, 767. It's a very popular engine, so there's many, many of them out there in the fleet. How dangerous, how dangerous is it when one of these comes apart? It appeared that uh, a piece of it even punctured the fuselage. Well, remember this engine, uh, this is the compressor section of the engine, and it's spinning very fast, particularly in this situation when it's operating at high power out of the high elevation airport such as Denver. Uh, they probably are running at their max power, so it's under the most strain at that point. And if anything happens to uh, one of those uh, fan blades, uh, these have a fair amount of mass, and it broke off apparently at the root of the blade. And it'd be kind of like driving down your the highway at uh, 80 miles an hour in your car with a big balance weight on the wheel, and that suddenly flings off. Suddenly you're going to get a lot of vibration in your steering and shaking, and uh, that's what happened here. It shook so much that it dislodged the cowling, which caused it all to fall down in that uh, residential neighborhood. So I, I think that the problem will be solved relatively easily. There's just too many of these engines out there, and there's too much experience with these parts to have some basic design flaw, I think. Keith Mackey has been with us, aviation expert and owner-operator of Mackey International. Already preliminary findings on uh, what happened with that United Airlines flight and its engine failure on the Boeing 777, and it looks like they're on their way to correcting that. Keith, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. You too. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.